you're not there yet, Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to. Matthew 7. So all of us in our lifetimes have had a variety of commands and directives that have been given to us uh, in various spheres of life, whether it's a parent or a teacher or a coach or a military officer or a boss or some other source, we're all very familiar with directives and commands being given. In fact, we, we, we even recognize this kind of scenario. Someone gives us a directive or a command, we, we very readily understand that directive and the intent of it. We know the consequences if we don't do that particular thing, that directive, and we still don't do it. We've all been there at some point in time. Uh, as, as a kid, growing up in New York, I remember my dad saying, it, it seemed like from the month of October through April, April, shovel the driveway. A lot of snow in New York. Um, or mow the grass. Or uh, a teacher saying, do this assignment. Or a coach in basketball saying, here's how you do a drop step, post move, this is the footwork for that. A boss giving a task, a, a, an assignment there to, to complete in some kind of a way. You hear all these things, and you know, man, if I don't do this, my, my father will come home with a certain kind of uh, demeanor, if that's the case. Oh, my. Coach will say, great, you didn't get it again, let's sprint. Cool, you didn't do the assignment? Zero is your grade. And on and on it goes. So we, we know what this is to hear clearly and not always do or called to do. Now, we've been in Matthew for a while, and we're in this section called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the last portion of that sermon in Matthew chapter 7. And here, Jesus is giving, again, clear directives and commands to his people. And I want to say this again as I prayed it. We've sung it this morning. I'll say this numerous times today. There are things in this text and beforehand in Matthew 5 and 6 and more to come in Matthew 8, 9, 10 and beyond and in the entire Bible where God is directing and calling us and commanding us to do certain things. And if you're like me, you're saying, oh my, how? I can't do what God is calling me to do, and that's why all this has to be under the umbrella of grace. Grace. God's goodness and his kindness and his empowering of us, given to us, even though it is undeserved. If we want to do these things in Matthew 7, it will be because of grace. Like Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And his grace, friends, is coming to you in maximal proportions. He is lavishing it on you. He is saying, here's the call, and here's the grace to do that. And by the way, just to throw this in, he's saying, hey, God the Spirit also resides in you. There's a supply that God gives to us in these ways. So in this sermon so far, We've discussed the true blessing of God in the Beatitudes, being salt and light in the world. We've discussed the heart of keeping the commands God's given to us, uh, giving and praying and fasting for God-centered motivation, laying up treasures in heaven, and then not worrying, but seeking first God's kingdom. That's enough in itself, but he's got, I got more. I have more to say about some of these matters. And so, the call here, we're going to see by the end of this, is to hear Jesus 
and by God's grace to do what he's calling us to do, to, to live as citizens of a kingdom from the heart, from a transformed heart for God. So the, the main idea for today is this. As citizens of God's kingdom, hear and do Jesus' words by God's grace. Again, as citizens of God's kingdom, hear and do Jesus' words by God's grace. Don't forget, God's kingdom, we define as God's uh, people in God's place under God's rule. So it's God's kingdom people in a place, and we're coming under his authority and his sovereignty and his rule. We're submitting ourselves to him, and we're following Jesus. We're going down the path Jesus calls us to and following him by grace. So, here are a few items he's calling us to today. First one is this. As kingdom citizens, live together as a confessing and forgiving family. As kingdom citizens, live together as a confessing and a forgiving family. These are well-known verses, I think, for, for many reasons. In fact, I think sometimes chapter 7, verse 1 of Matthew has kind of become like the new John 3.16. Like back in my childhood, everyone knew John 3.16 even when you watch a football game and they do an extra point, there's always a sign back in the day of like John 3.16 right there by the goalposts. I'm like, thank you. Yes. Uh, I think though, man, in the church, outside the church, I hear an awful lot, judge not lest you be judged. I hear a lot of that. And the intent a lot of times behind that is don't ever judge me at all, ever. Yet in verse 5, he says, You'll take the log out of your own eye, we'll discuss that, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, which sounds like discerning judgment is being rendered. So, which is it? Do we judge not, or do we judge? And the answer I think Jesus gives here is to say, judge in a certain kind of a way, is what he's saying. We judge in a certain kind of a way. Jesus is calling us not to condemn or judge overly harshly, or, or dare we say here, he's not calling us to cancel people. Modern day words. Right? With no hope of explanation or restoration or forgiveness. Can I just say, if that word, like, we're going we're gonna to cancel that person, if that word is used in a way to say, yeah, we're done with you. There's no hope of explanation or forgiveness. That is anti-gospel. Can we just say that? Because the gospel is a record of a confessing and reconciling and forgiving. That's part of what God's family does in this context. So the call is, don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge overly harshly. Don't judge in an unloving, unforgiving kind of way. That's the call. And don't forget, a lot of times in this sermon, Jesus is addressing at times this group known as Pharisees who would judge hypocritically and harshly and unlovingly. And, and even judge in a way that would lead towards self-elevation. We can judge sometimes to elevate our own status and put others down in some ways. And Jesus is saying, nope. That's not how we do these things. Even when we were in James a while back as a church, we said numerous times, man, James refers to the Sermon on the Mount quite a few times. Here's, here's one example. 
James 2 verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying, don't judge hypocritically, harshly, unlovingly. But then, you go to like 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul says there, hey, you're not to judge outsiders, but those within the church, you need to render judgments at times to say, this is true or not true, that's an unrepentant sin we got to take care of. So, just to know here in the first two verses, we will be judged by God. The, the measure we use will be measured to us, verse 2 says. So, we should recognize our own shortcomings, because we, we have them. And not condemn others in a condescending, arrogant, unforgiving kind of way, knowing we would not want that kind of treatment from God. God shows grace, thank you so much. I want to extend grace to others as well in the way I speak to them. There should be a humility, a humility, friends, a watching over ourselves so that we do not fall into temptation and not just trying to look at, and how can I judge other people? How do I find their faults and be on the lookout for these things? There's a humility and a self-awareness we need in there. But also, there is a call to a right level of judging. We're called to examine ourselves carefully, and then with humility and discernment, we're called to exhort others, warn others of their unrepented-of sin. We're called to this. We don't want to be overly harsh and so unrelenting that we're unwilling to forgive, but we, we do exhort and we do extend that as there is repentance in that way as well. We want to be doing this in love, in humility. That's the call. Now, Jesus illustrates this. We know this one. Like, log in your eye, speck in their eye. That's a weird picture. That's funny. It really is. That's Jesus being funny. Seriously. That's a weird picture. It's like, hey, you got a little something in your eye right there when a two-by-four is coming out of your face. That's strange. And, and he's trying to make the point here to say, man, look to your own stuff before you just look at others. He's not saying never look at others. He's saying look to yourself, remove the two by four. Then you will see clearly to help that person and help them to go through and repent of their sin. That's the idea we see there. So, friends, I think we can recognize faults in others a whole lot more readily than we can in ourselves sometimes. I give me the benefit of the doubt a lot right? It's like, well, it's been a hard week. These circumstances, you don't know how this has worked. But we don't do that for others a lot of times. We can just tend to judge. So we need to keep that in mind. So we're calling for a kind of a culture here at Grace Baptist. We're calling for a culture where we confess sin and, and we exhort one another and we forgive one another and reconcile to one another in relationships. That, that humble correction and genuine confession is a part of family life here. Again, humble correction and genuine confession is just a part of our family life here at Grace. There's a great set of statements I came across years ago in a book called Peacemaker by a guy named Ken Sandy. Uh, he gives seven statements of I mean, what does it mean to confess? Because again, if we're a culture that here in this text, we got to 
confess to one another, exhort one another, forgive one another, repent, reconcile, all, all these things. Then what, what's involved here? Well, what's involved here could be things like this. Uh, the seven A's of confession would include addressing everyone involved. Maybe I or, or you offend a person or some people. I want to address all who are involved and, and make sure they know I'm aware of this. Avoid if, but, or maybe. Avoid saying, hey, sorry with that. You don't understand how my week was, and you don't know how this, and this, and if this, but this. No, just own it. Own it. Admit specifically. Here are the attitudes and the actions that I, I brought to bear that were wrong. Acknowledge the hurt. I, I, I hurt you in a way that I did not want to do, and I recognize that. Except there could be relational consequences. There could be a variety of consequences there. Alter your behavior or, or repent and then ask for forgiveness. We had these things written down on a whiteboard in our kitchen for months. We changed it this fall. But for months, why? Because as a family, we don't always excel here. It's being honest. And trying to help me, and Rachel, and Hannah, and Jonathan think through how, how do we relate to one another, ask forgiveness, confess, do all these things. How do we do this well? And we're like, ah, oh, number four. Ah, uh, number two. Or just trying to help one another in that kind of a way. I can't tell you. Listen, just real quick insider information here. I'm on a preaching team with several others in this church. Every Tuesday, we meet for an hour to assess uh, the previous Sunday's sermon and then look at the next week's sermon, and then the next Tuesday we'll do the same thing. So this past Tuesday, I got evaluation of, hey, here are your notes so far, here are thoughts for you to think about for improvement. Then this next Tuesday, I will hear from my team saying, hey, this was great, uh, here's some room for improvement. And can I just tell you, like, it's hard to hear that sometimes. You know why? I have an ego. Maybe you do too. I can't tell you how many times, <laughs> it's embarrassing, uh, I've had to go to a team member and say, hey, my tone probably was not the best when you made that correction. And I was getting a little prideful there, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I did it this past week, friends. Like, hey, you know, I want to say, when in doubt, do this. When in doubt, do this. I texted a colleague, hey, I, I didn't sense that, appreciate that, but whatever. You know what, though? I sense in my own heart tendencies towards some of these things with the confession, forgiving, exhorting, reconciling sort of things where it's hard sometimes. We've got to humble ourselves and do what God is calling us to do in that kind of a way. So that's the posture, friends. We, we do this. And I can bet in this room, don't raise hands, but if I asked you to raise hands and, and, and said, man, who, who here enjoys receiving correction? I would venture to say there aren't many in this room, if any, who would say, ooh, ooh, that's me. I just love being corrected. More, please. That's not, that's not many of us, I don't think. And yet part of the Christian life is being humble enough to give and to receive correction and to do that in the right kind of way. That's, that's a call for us. And that 
Friends, that requires a lot of humility, to give it and to receive it. There's some, verse, verse 6, who, uh, who don't want to receive that. Jesus says, don't, uh, in verse 6, give to dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs. There, there are some who, who do not follow Jesus and they will not receive these words of truth well and we need to discern how and when and to whom we say these things. For those who are in the church, we should receive these words and say, okay, uh, remove this log, then I'll see clearly to help my brother or sister remove that speck from their eye. To be a self-examining, humble, loving people. A self-examining, humble, loving people who do this. Secondly, as kingdom citizens, pray with persistence to our loving Father. So he goes on here to say, pray with persistence. More, more well-known verses. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it'll be opened. Now, there are a lot of verses in the Bible about prayer. We should pray. We should pray constantly. We should pray about everything. Pray without ceasing. It's praying all the time in these ways. I do want to note, though, I do think these verses are embedded in, in this particular context to remind us, man, if we're going to hear Jesus' words and do Jesus' words, that's going to require some amazing grace of God in my life. How do I access that grace? I pray. I pray. I ask him, oh Lord, help with this. I pray, Lord, give me strength in this. We need supernatural help to do these things. Have you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 the last few weeks? Are you reading along with the reading plan for what we're doing here in Matthew? If you read these chapters, you may say, that's a lot. I don't feel sufficient to do that. Welcome to the club where 100% of us are in the club. We're not sufficient. That's why we pray, oh God, give me your grace to do just that. And he, man, help me, Lord. I'm reading Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. I need your grace to do these things. Would you help me? And God's going to say, all day long. I got grace all day. I want to empower all day long. Let's do this. Depend on me. Pray to me. I will help you be the kind of person that is truly blessed Beatitudes. I will help you to be salt and light in your context, showing and sharing Jesus. I will help you to be obedient from the heart in these various areas of life. I will help you to give and pray and fast with right motivations. I will help you to lay up treasure in heaven. I will help you to not worry, but to seek first my kingdom. I will help you to not judge hypocritically and unlovingly, but to do so Christianly. Well, thanks. This is what he does. This is what he does all the time. And then he illustrates this with a parent-child kind of relationship here. He says in this, uh, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I mean, I'll just, I'll just say my, my version here. So I coach my son's soccer team. I told him at the, end, the beginning of the season, every time you score a hat trick in a game, it's three goals, I will buy you a Schuler's donut. Some incentive there. You know. 
And he loves Schuler's Donuts, particularly the Buckeye Donut. He's a fan. So um, he scored several hat-tricks this year. Got to pay up, right? So uh, this last Tuesday morning, Monday night, I said, hey, donut waiting for you tomorrow morning, pal. All right, he's happy, excited. Imagine Tuesday morning comes around, he comes out of his bedroom, comes to the kitchen, a plate is there at his place, and it's a plate full of spinach. Now, you may not know my son's eating habits. I can tell you, he is not happy. Like, really not happy. My daughter, she loves shoes a lot. And so, just say, she's on Amazon with my wife saying, oh, I love that pair of shoes. Can I get those? Sure. And she goes, and Rachel makes an order on Amazon. The box comes, and Hannah's like, yes, here it is. Opens it, and inside the box is a live poisonous snake, right? Now, first, she's terrified. Secondly, she is not happy. She wanted a pair of shoes. We wouldn't wouldn't do that. We have not done that yet. No, we wouldn't. We haven't done that. (laughs) And Jesus is saying, like, what? Why? Because you're your parents. You you understand as parents, you want to give good gifts to your kids. And he says in verse uh, 11, if you who are evil, then you're sinful. You know how to give gifts to your kids. How much more will our Father in Heaven give good gifts to his kids? And the point is, like, a lot, because you're not God. (laughs) He gives really good gifts to his kids, those who come and ask in dependence on him. Luke 11 is a parallel passage here He says, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So listen, friends, pray for all the needs you have. You should do that, we should do that. Just saying here, pray for grace to obey these things. Pray the Spirit's power would increase in your life to walk in Jesus' ways. That's what He's wanting to do in our lives as our good, loving Father. So pray, friends. Pray that we would be truly humble people. Pray that we'd be truly salt and light. Pray, Matthew 5, you have lust issues? This is Matthew 5. Pray over the sin of lust to kill that thing. You have anger issues? This is Matthew 5. Pray to your loving Father to say, I want to kill this in my life. Relationship issues integrity issues. You have them? Pray. Pray, pray, pray. Do we, do we give or pray or fast to impress others and show them how great we are? Pray that God would help you and I to do this with the right motivation, God-centered motivation. Pray to be more generous, less anxious, less hypocritically judgmental. All these things These are real areas of need, and God loves to give good gifts to his kids. Keep going to him in prayer. Individually, corporately, let's pray for that end. And third, as kingdom citizens, live as true followers of Jesus. So live in a confessing, forgiving family community. Pray persistently. And then this last section, he's saying, look, I want you all to discern what is a true disciple of Jesus? This is really the, the culmination of this whole sermon. He's trying to conclude and say, here's what a true follower of mine looks like. So in this first verse, in verse 12, well known again, so 
whatever you wish the others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Sounds a lot like love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds really simple, right? Jesus says, hey, the, the heart of the law is to love God with all and love your neighbor as yourself. Here he's saying, hey, like the Old Testament law and prophets is summed up in this idea of doing unto others as you would have done unto you. Here's the problem, at least for me. I can be very self-centered. There's a problem in loving others, caring for others, serving others, considering others better than myself. I love me a lot. And can I, can I just say, you love you a lot. There's a call from Jesus here to say, yeah, there's a call to put that aside and be others-oriented in our lives, to have the mindset of how can I serve others, sacrifice for others? How can I add value to their life? As opposed to how will you add value to my life? What do you do for me? Friends, we need to grow in this area. Need to grow in the area of love in that kind of a way. And Jesus is saying, This is the way of true life. Then he ends with four different illustrations of, of the same kind of point to say, Hey, here, here's truly following Jesus and, and not truly following Jesus. So, first in verse 13 uh, is this idea of, of the gate and the path. Jesus says, He commands here, Enter by the narrow gate and walk this narrow, difficult path. That's a call to enter God's kingdom by repentance and faith. That's the call, to, to walk in that kind of way. We should forsake the broad way the world offers to us. One commentator says this, we need not look elsewhere for definitions of the wide or the easy gate that leads to destruction. Jesus has just spent the better part of three chapters describing it. To content oneself with a superficial keeping of God's commands, to perform religious rituals for the applause of others, and to self-righteously point out the faults of others, all outline the boundaries of the easy path worn smooth by respectable people. But the narrow gate, the hard way, are not so popular. Those who are meek, who mourn, who hunger thirst for God, who suffer for Him are rare. The ability to discern the spirit of God's command, to submit to it with the heart, to perform only for the audience of one, to secure one's life in God rather than money every day is hard. Pursuing holiness and community from the rich supply of a generous father describes the better righteousness, the inner righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and truly leads to life. The world's path is easy, it's broad, it's alluring, it's seductive, it's attractive, but it leads to destruction. That's the end. Followers of Jesus take the hard path, the difficult path in this life, but it leads to eternal life with God, pleasures forever in him. So, friends, let's not be deceived by the world's self-made religious efforts to be okay, like alternate religions or self-worship or technology or achievement and promotion or, or 
I'm better than so-and-so. Following Jesus means humility, repentance, faith, spirit-produced obedience, and even suffering at times. And it leads to life, the narrow path. Secondly here, true and false prophets. So people proclaim truth, and some proclaim falsehoods. True teachers, false teachers. We've got to be discerning of false teachers. Going back to the first few verses here, we've got to judge and discern false teaching and false teachers. Be aware. They may look and sound, it says here in verse uh, 20, sorry, verse 15, uh, they come in sheep's clothing, look innocent, look and sound okay, but they are inwardly ravenous wolves. They want to devour and destroy your life. And you will know them, it says, by their fruits. So we recognize such people by their demeanor, their behavior, their motivations and intentions, the outcome of their life. This is why, friends, we want to want to preach from the Bible Sunday by Sunday by Sunday to not come over the word and say our opinions but to submit to the word and say what's there to be said and teach truth from God's word. So we open Bibles each week and do this because we want to be those kinds of teachers. That's our, our hope. So Jesus points to this to say, okay, there's, there's healthy trees, good teachers, and there's unhealthy trees, false teachers, and this produces good fruit, and that produces bad fruit. So the last house I lived in before I came to Cedarville, we had a, a cherry tree in the backyard, and it produced sour cherries every year. Now, I can desire all I want to for that tree to produce sweet cherries. It ain't gonna. I can desire all I want to to say, how about you produce apples this year? It's not going to. It's not going to. Why? Because the nature of the tree means it bears sour cherries. And he's saying here, look, you will know them by their fruits. You will see by their teaching, the outcome of their life, is their heart true to the Lord or false to the Lord? Then, then this next one, true and false disciples. In verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Maybe you'd agree with me. I think these are some of the scariest verses in the Bible. There are people who genuinely, wholeheartedly are convinced they are in with Jesus. And someday they will stand before Jesus in judgment, saying, here I am. And Jesus says to them, I don't know you. I don't know you. I think it would be negligent of me to assume this kind of a text would be true of any other church in the world and any other era of church history besides this moment 
at Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville. What I mean is, this text could be very true for some in this room. So, I want to say to us, if we are playing the game of religion, if we are trying to look apart but our hearts are not with Jesus, this will be exposed someday. Friends, this brings us back to the Beatitudes. Who's the kind of person that Jesus looks to and says they're blessed? And to remind you, it's not impressive people. It's those who in humility turn from sin and by faith follow Jesus simply as a disciple. They are poor in spirit. They mourn over sin and worldliness. They're meek and gentle. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful, pure in heart. They're peacemakers, even persecuted for Jesus' sake. Now, this text, the intention is not to scare genuine believers. That's not Jesus' intention here. It is to jar unbelievers who think they're okay when they're simply playing games. When they're riding the fence of the world and following Jesus. And he's calling them to say, forsake the world, forsake sin, and follow me with a new heart. That's, that's the call. He wants us to follow him as disciples, truly doing his will. Then finally, in verse 24, a wise and foolish builder. I'll bet you all know this one from a song from childhood. At least I do. I'm not going to sing it for you. But the wise man built his house on the rock, and the rain came tumbling down. The rains came down, and the floods came up, right? And the house on the rock stood firm. You guys know? Yeah. So then the foolish man builds his house on the sand. Rains came down, floods came up, and the house on the sand went... Exactly. Yes, that's, this is childhood right here. So there it is. Splat. Notice the difference. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Verse 26. Everyone who does these words, or hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. They both hear. The wise and the foolish hear. It's like that teacher, that coach, that parent, that boss. You hear the directive, but it's the wise who does, who does what our Lord is asking, is saying, is directing, is commanding here in this moment. That's the difference, hearing and doing by God's grace. As kingdom citizens, we hear and we do Jesus' words by God's grace. And by the end of this sermon, they're astounded at the authority with which he teaches. And it's, it's also to say, you ain't seen nothing yet. Teaching with authority? Let me show you how I'm going to cast out demons with authority. Heal the sick with authority. Uh, tell storms to be calm with authority. And then by the end of this book, say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the teaching of our Lord Jesus. So what is this driving at? is driving at the idea of 
a heart that is transformed, that then is doing God's will. Out of a heart motivation, actions come to do the right things for the right reasons. Because we're called to do good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, but that comes from a heart that has been transformed by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 8 9 says. Sometimes, friends, we could mistake activity for genuine, grace-driven, spirit-produced fruit. I want to say that again. Sometimes we could mistake activity that we do that looks good for genuine, grace-given, spirit-produced fruit. People could work tirelessly, but may in fact not have transformed hearts and therefore are doing things with the wrong kind of motivation, self-centered motivation, notice me kinds of motivation, and that can even happen, yes, in the church. And he's calling for a people who, by grace, have repented, Matthew 3, Matthew 4, and then say, I'm here to follow you as a disciple, I will stumble, I will not always be perfect in this. I'm going to come to you and seek your grace again and again to follow you faithfully and he will grant you grace with a new heart to walk in these ways. Friends, that's, that's why the gospel is such good news. The gospel is such good news because in this place right now, if you're saying, man, I'm not a believer and I know that I'm not a believer. Or, man, I'm hearing these words and I've thought in some ways, yeah, I've been following Jesus, doing enough that I, I can get by and be fine to, well, wait a second, these words are really serious. The gospel is good news because right now in this moment, he's calling all people to turn from sin, turn from worldliness, and turn to Jesus and say, I am believing in you as my Savior and my Lord and my treasure. I can't save myself. No worldly thing can get me in right relationship with God only you can I'm coming to you and every single time Jesus says come 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 and every single time salvation occurs by grace through faith and it produces beautiful fruit so that's you today that's the call to turn to Jesus and believe and for those who who know Christ here the call is not to to doubt salvation per se is to recognize that's right we can get off the treadmill of self-made religion we just get off that treadmill and remember that christ's work is finished past tense that i'm a new creation in christ that joy and peace are found in him and i found this god's kingdom is made up of people who are humble repentant, believing, whose hearts are made new to grow in obedience and generosity and prayer and peace and relational wisdom and love. The gospel reminds us that grace saved us. Jeff read Titus 2 in the beginning here. Grace saved us and grace continues to train us to be godly people together in community. As a family, that's the call we see here as kingdom citizens. What a 
package of chapters here to look and to see this is the call of Jesus. Hear these words. Do these words by God's grace. And His grace will come to you to the end of your days and forever beyond, friends. This is our reality. So Father, I pray that we would be disciples, Lord, who are faithfully following you. Lord Jesus, your word is true. We sense our own insufficiency to, to do all these things, and we pray that you would help us, supply us with strength to walk in obedience. We are so grateful that we are saved by grace through faith. Lord, I pray if someone is here as we now sing and partake of the Lord's Supper and as we talk and pray and converse afterwards, that they would renounce sin in their lives and turn to you in faith. They talk to someone about that and move forward in that way. We want to be a church family that is together following you by your grace. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.